Welcome into another episode of Cyberly. I am your host, Blake Burnley. But on this show, we talk about B2B marketing, the attention economy, and how it all fits into the world of logistics. And we have a little bit of an interesting show for you today. We're going to talk about economic espionage in two different ways. First, we're going to talk about how the British stole essentially the recipes and the cultivation methods from China in order to make black tea. And that's famously what everybody drinks over in the UK and also in the United States. So it's a little bit of an interesting backstory there. And then we're going to bring it full circle to present day and how to use different digital media tools to spy on your competition. Then we also have a few guests that are joining us for today's show. Nadine from Sync Show is talking about the great eight pillars of ROI-driven marketing, with ROI being such a a forever hot topic in marketing and sales. That's going to be a really interesting um, discussion in order to figure out what those great eight listings are. And then we're going to bring back Wasim Munair. He is from the Munair Group. And he's going to be talking about those pesky Gen Z kids and their hiring slang, among other employment topics within the world of logistics. But before we get into that first topic, the Munair Group is a leading recruiting firm specializing in the logistics and technology field. Whether you're looking for a new job in the industry or you're looking to hire top-tier talent, the Moonair Group has the network strength to meet your needs. Learn more at moonairgroup.com. Now that first topic that we kind of hinted at just a second ago, and it's how to spy on your competition. And I'm going to mention this, that you should spy, not steal. Think of this as almost kind of a scouting report that would be created at maybe the college or the pro level, especially in sports. But think of this as a scouting report in order to get the lay of the land and the tools and uh, methodology behind what a lot of companies present day are either using or not using, and then how you can use some of those same things in your own scouting report as you're kind of trying to get the lay of the land. And the reason I bring this up is because over the last month or so, we've really been diving deep into freight tech, 3PLs and carriers and looking at the technology stack that they are working with. So what CMS are they using? What techno- What marketing and sales technology are they using? Are they using HubSpot? Are they using uh, Salesforce? Are they using Marketo? Are they using Sixth Sense? Are they using nothing at all? Do they have a website? Do they have social media presence? So all of that information was super insightful to me to sort of get you know a lay of the technology land and the marketing land. But I'm going to review some of the tools that I use during that process because a lot of these tools are the same thing that I use in my own sort of scouting report process whenever a new client or a prospect will come to me and want me to give an estimate on what it, how much it would be and what kind of workload it would look like to for them for us to work together. And these are the tools that I use in that research phase in order to find out if it's going to be a good fit or not. And so let's bring up the first tool that I use to sort of spy on my competition. But in this case, this is really just spying on what the industry trends are and what industry leaders are doing amongst you know the some of the top lists in the entire country. So top carrier list, top 3PL list, um, top freight tech, all of those good things. So the first tool is called Built With. And Built With will give you a breakdown of the technology profile of any website that you enter into the search bar. It's completely free. Now you can, there's of course like paid plans where you can get a little bit more updated information. You can also get information that is, uh, you know, a little bit more detailed than what the free plans will give you. But the free plan gives you a ton of insight. And from their website on how they get their info is Built With says, we index the internet in the 
the same way that Google does to power their search engine. We don't get data from any third parties, which is great because with this tool, you can tell someone's uh, CMS, you can tell someone's CRM. Are they using HubSpot? Are they using Salesforce? Are they using Zoom Info? Um, you can also tell about... It, pretty much gauge the advertising platforms that that business is either using based off of the pixels that they have installed into their site. So if they're doing any kind of Facebook advertising or you know anything on display ads such as Google, they're going to have those pixels added to their website because that is a way to track conversion. And so whenever you are tracking those conversions, those pixel codes are installed into your website and the publicly available information and using that site built with will tell you which company are using that kind of... Uh, or they either have the pixels installed on their site and that means they're actively running ads or they have the pixels installed on their site and they're just collecting that data for future advertising purposes. So Built With is a good solution for that. Now, the next one I want to bring up is a website grader by HubSpot. Now, this is one of the more brilliant ways I think that HubSpot has you know, really... I, I really kind of got the dominance card when it comes to um, their their marketing presence and selling their marketing software. And so with the, the website grader tool, it's completely free to use. You enter in your email address and it gives you a, a grade essentially on how your website is performing. If you're looking at the screen right now, you see that my own website, Digital Dispatch, has a score of about 85. And so it tells you under four different measurement methods that your performance, SEO, mobile, and security... And so you're judged out of those few categories. But if you're looking at the screen, uh, performance is good. SEO is pretty decent, 25 out of 30. Um, security is 10 out of 10. But then on the mobile version of the site, which I'm fully aware needs some work, and we're actually working on that this week as we speak. Hope to have you know that those improvements done you know as soon as possible. Of course, that that's what you know famous last words for any sort of website development project because a website is never truly done. So from that lens, I need to do a little bit of work, but I could take that same tool and I could look up somebody else's website. You could take a competitor's website and put that into that tool and see where their weaknesses are, but also use it for your own website in order to find out where your weaknesses are because that's ultimately that's more important. If you don't want to be chasing what other companies are doing all the time, you really want to set the lead and you want to set the tone for how your website is performing because ultimately that's the last sort of bastion and the, the sales process that you can really control. And so making sure that your website experience is up to par. But 85 is a B. I'll still take it. I was a B student in school. So I will take that in the, the website realm as well, even though it's not perfect. But I will still use that as a basis to improve. Now, there's another tool called SimilarWeb that that will work in a lot of the same ways. It will combine a lot of the insight from HubSpot and also from Built With. And you can get a more deeper dive into, say, the keyword analysis and the keyword rank or the keyword ranking um, from organic and paid. You can get that kind of insight too from uh, SimilarWeb that is a paid solution. So if you have a little bit of a budget, then I would go with that one because the reports are a lot prettier than what you know Built With will, will send out to you. Built With is kind of um, a developer-friendly program, I would say. That's, and anytime you kind of joke around you know, development and design, development is always going to be a little rough around the edges when it comes to the display of information. While the design team, that's the ones that are responsible for making everything look good and also function as well. 
So there are a few other ones because this conversation really sort of uh, inspired me because it was from an investor in SaaS vet, Joe Spicer. He tweeted out all of the tools that he uses to spy on his competition. And so a few of them that I haven't really... I've somewhat tried in the past, but I just I haven't tried them recently. And so it was a good sort of you know memory refresher. And the first one he mentions is the Facebook ad library. Now for somebody who is actively out on the internet and actively recruiting people to, you know, maybe uh, apply to become a worker, become a driver. Um, A lot of these different... uh, That's really what, you know, Facebook and Instagram excel at is with those social media focused ads. But what you can do is you can go to Facebook and you can look up any company's past ads or current ads, and you can see how they're framing those different uh, conversion points. So if you're looking at the screen right now, you're kind of looking at a sample of that ad library. And again, this is free information. It's public information. If you're advertising on Facebook, then your your ads are going to... Your ads can be viewed by anyone using this ad library. You You have to know the company name in order to do that search. But it is a little bit... I think it's you can it can be used as inspiration on what's working, what you think is working, and how you can sort of cherry pick the best ad campaigns and what you like about the, all of those other campaigns. Because it doesn't have to be companies and freight. This can be any company that you admire, and maybe in the B two B space, or maybe in the B two in, in direct to consumer, you can model all of those different ad model, or you can look at all of those different ad models, and then you can pick and choose which one makes most sense for you and your brand. Now, the last one that I want. To mention, or that this uh, that Joe Spicer actually mentioned was Hotjar, and he mentioned it on the list. But I'm going to do him one better because Microsoft Clarity is has a lot of the same features as Hotjar, and it's free, and it's essentially a heat mapping tool for your website. So a heat mapping tool on your website is essentially a snapshot of your website. And then you can see the mouse patterns of when somebody comes to your site and where they scroll. And people typically, they will scroll left to right, down or at the top to bottom. And so that's how they read. It's almost like an F format, like the letter F. They read from top to bottom or left to right and then top to bottom. And so thinking of it from that lens, where are you putting your most important information? And you probably want to be putting your most important information where those little red circles are on that heat map of where that most important information should be going. Because somebody, several people are looking at your site in that way and they want to know what further information or what more information that they could dive into, if that makes sense. And so there, there's another aspect to this report as well that I think is really fascinating. It's called Rage Clicks. It's probably one of my favorite analytic, uh, I guess, deep dives is to find out, to go into Microsoft Clarity and to look through and find out where people are clicking on your website and thinking that it should take them to a new page with more information. But a lot of times those Rage Clicks are happening because users are clicking on something that they think leads to something else and it doesn't. And so that is a great solution, especially for a lot of website users out there, or maybe marketing departments, and you're kind of wondering where you're missing the gaps on the information that you're displaying. Well, Microsoft Clarity will give you all of that information for free as long as you install their pixel pixel on your website. So as I reiterated, or as I stated earlier, I'm going to reiterate again, I spy, not steal, and maybe think about it as a scouting report because... 
for a lot of you, you're going to be thinking about those 20, 2023 budgets in the next coming months. You're probably already kind of thinking about you know, how you're going to spend and how you're going to alter your budget for the next year. So using some of these tools, you can sort of analyze what the landscape looks like and you can start prepping those early plans for your 2023 budgets. So I think that those were all, you know, Really good suggestions by by was it Joe Spicer? Yeah, Joe Spicer. So SaaS investor and uh, just he had a really good list. So I thought that I would add my two cents into that. So now is a good time to bring in the perfect discussion for to follow up this discussion, and that is the we're going to bring in Nadine. Nocero Tai, and I hopefully I probably did not pronounce that correctly. I'm so sorry. So we're going to welcome in Nadine. She is the VP of Sales and Marketing at Sync Show. And Nadine, we first met back at the TMSA conference in the quote unquote lazy river that really oh. wasn't too lazy at all. And hopefully we were able to have like some good conversations as water is splashing all over us into our faces. Um, but yeah, it was great to see you again after our, our lazy river incident. <laughs> Great to see you, um, especially, you know, with our hair blown out and our makeup on and exactly to your point on our non lazy river, lazy river experience, but it was super fun. So it's wonderful to see you now much more professionally and you did pronounce my name correctly. (laughs) So thank you. Awesome. That's it. That the phonetic spelling. I have a little form for folks who don't know. I have a little form that, that all it. guests fill out. It helps me phonetically. They, they you spell out your name phonetically, and that helps me pronounce it on air because I'm so bad at it. So I realize it. So thank you for for you know spelling that out for me clearly. Um, but one of the big things that we talked about in the Lazy River was a a new book that you were working on, and I think that the the point of that book was what you're talking about in our first topic, which is really going to be the you know the the bulk of this conversation on the great eight pillars of ROI driven marketing. Let's go ahead and just start kick it right off and and give us a little bit of, of background into how you came up with this. Perfect. Thank you so much. And yes, great memory. So I had mentioned to you when we met that my CEO and co-founder of my company, Sync Show, he and I are writing a book together called The Great Eight Pillars of ROI Driven Marketing. And the backstory of how we got here, it's like we're both marketers by trade. He's an entrepreneur by trade. And we didn't set out to write a book, but our agency is nearly 20 years old. And I've been with the firm for almost 10. And at the end of the day, when you work in a marketing department or lead a marketing department, lead a sales department, lead a digital agency or in-client relations for a digital agency, you are tasked with providing value to your clients and or to your company. And if you aren't, that harsh reality is that you will end up most likely getting worked out of your role or the organization, your client contracts won't be renewed, your budgets will be cut. So as agency leaders, we look at this and say, how do we provide real value to our clients? Because if we're providing value, if we're providing ROI, they're going to continue to renew retainers with us. We're going to grow as they grow. And it's a win-win. And that's really what the great eight pillars of digital marketing was born out of. We have had a super successful track record of providing pipeline revenue for our clients. And we sat back and we said, let's actually organize the method behind this madness and make this a repeatable process that we can educate prospects and clients and peers in the space on how to do this successfully. So that's how we got here. And we basically take this process through 
our work for our clients, our work for ourselves, and have since decided, let's write this book. Um, That book will be coming out in the spring of 2023. It's deeply underway, and we're really excited to share it with everyone. And in the meantime, we're just unpacking what those eight pillars are in conversations just like this, because there should be some really great actionable takeaways for everybody who's watching or listening that um, can help impact their sales and marketing today. Perfect. Let's. That's a perfect segue to dive into what. Let's start with the first few of them. What do those first, you know, sort of eight great pillars look like, or great eight pillars? Yes. So we've ordered them essentially in order of importance. So yes, let's start with number one. Our first pillar is marketing team structure. So at the end of the day, you have to have the right people in the right seats. If anyone is familiar with EOS or the traction model of uh, business planning. We know that people, if they are in the right seats, if they're on the bus and they're in the right seats, they're going to be successful in their role. So the first part in creating a really strong digital marketing strategy is ensuring that you have the proper roles identified, but also the people who are able to own those roles successfully, perform at their highest and best, and essentially outsource or hire out for all of those other roles and accountabilities that those people aren't strong at. So typically what that means, the long and short of it is, do you have a marketing strategist? Do you have a person who's able to identify the trends and the goals and the opportunities for your business and bring that marketing strategy around what your business is trying to achieve? Do you have a project manager who's able to just keep that train on the tracks, who's able to streamline all of your deliverables, make sure your deadlines are met, make sure your projects are in scope and keep things moving? Because it doesn't matter if you have the best ideas What matters is executing on those, creating that plan, and ensuring that those things get done in a timely manner. And then last but not least, I almost look at that project manager or project team as the conduit between the strategist and what we call the specialists. These are your videographers, your copywriters, your graphic designers, your search engine optimization experts. These are the people that if a strategist is a mile wide and an inch deep, These are the people that are a mile deep and only an inch wide. So they're the people that are going to be very specific to um, owning their specialty and Mm -hmm. really helping you optimize for success in that lane individually. I love that because, but what happens on, I think on the flip side with a lot of transportation and logistics companies, they're lucky to have one person that is handling and they're typically handling all of those tasks. What happens if they don't have, I guess, necessarily the budget approval to hire maybe or outsource um, and build that marketing team internal? Is that where a company like yours comes into play? That's exactly it. And it is so frequent in the transportation and logistics space that you are a team of one. And I think that's also just a huge opportunity to say, let's just level set and have a transparent conversation around I'm one person. So how can I best achieve what I'm going to achieve? And where do I spend my time to make the biggest difference to my business? Because you cannot do everything. And oftentimes, the best opportunity there is either outsource to an agency that has a specialty that can help support you or a general agency that can help you cover that ground. And then if it's budget dependent, you know, it's how are you hiring either specific freelancers or using vendors in a very purposeful way to help make your budget go the farthest. And then last but not least, do not discount from a specialty standpoint, a thought leadership standpoint, the people within your own organization. Those are the people that are doing business with your customers, with your prospects who are answering questions and solving problems. Often that is such a great source of content 
and being able to utilize those folks for interviews, blog posts, um, things that you can then deploy across your marketing is going to be really impactful. So don't forget to look outside of your immediate department, but within your entire company as well. I love that. Use subject matter expertise to your advantage because you can create the same blog posts as everybody else, but your subject matter experts are really going to be your key differentiator. And so you had mentioned the first three. What about rounding out the sort of the rest of the list? What are the most... I, I imagine they're all important, but what are some of the, the other key takeaways from, from the, the grade 8 list? Absolutely. So I think that keying in on your value proposition and your messaging and your branding is going to be really important. Value prop messaging and branding are one pillar for us. And we've started this conversation talking about content. And if you have a great marketing budget, a huge budget, a really effective sales team, you're only going to go so far if you don't have the right messaging. So again, it's like if your marketing is supercharged, if you have a huge budget and you're deploying things left and right, and your sales team is on their game, they have a sequence, they're following up, they know what their KPIs are. They're great at hitting those follow-ups. None of those things matter if that middle piece, that value proposition, the messaging and the branding around it don't align. You need to make sure at every level of your company, everyone is swimming in the same direction. And what I mean there is, what's the story of your company? What do you do? Who do you do it for? Why do you do it better than your competition? And marketing needs to be communicating that. Sales needs to be communicating that. And once they land as a customer, customer service needs to be able to reinforce that through those proof points. You can't just say you're really great at doing something. And you can't just say, oh, well, we have over 300 years of collective experience. And because of that, we're the best at what we do. You need to come up with actual value points and proof points that say, this is the problem we solve. This is who we solve it for. And this is how it's going to make you feel or what you're going to experience when you round that out. And so with your agency, you guys work in not just transportation logistics, but other industries as well. Do you find that... How does transportation and logistics compare as far as marketing staffing is concerned to other industries? Are we behind the curve? Or are we right about the same with other industries, You know, having about that one-person marketing team and then outsourcing the rest? Absolutely. So that's a fantastic thing to think about. And Syncsha works in the B2B space exclusively. And aside from transportation and logistics, we also work in manufacturing, which I would say has a more similar approach to transportation and logistics. It's usually a shared responsibility between sales and marketing. It's usually a bit of a smaller team and they're relying on partners to effectively achieve their goals when it comes to branding and messaging and ROI marketing. We also, though, work in software as a service. And software, for example, will typically have a bit of a larger marketing team and marketing sits as its own department. And they'll really leverage partners to scale. So typically, mm -hmm. there's a team that says, we've brought our, our vision forward to a certain point and we've done so, so successfully. And now we're really looking to take that to the next level. What does that look like and how do we leverage partners who are outside of our skill set or quite simply just buy time when we need the time and support? How you know, the, I, I read an article the difference. Oh, oh, go ahead. Go <laughs> Sorry, ahead. <laughs> I was gonna say the biggest difference. My my former life 
was on the business to consumer side. And that's really where you see just super robust marketing teams, um, very large budget budgets, very creative, bold campaigns. And, and it's just because the dollars are able to go there because consumer spending, you can really tie that much easier um, than historically you have been able to tie a B2B sale. Yeah, because I, I was just having a conversation w- with a client the other day. And he's like, I know marketing is important, but I have no idea how to attribute value to it. And so that's when it starts mm-hmm. those conversations. Well, what tools are you using? What value props are you offering? You know, all of those different, you know, conversations that affect the overall outcome of your B2B sale, because it, it's just such a longer sales cycle than, you know, seeing an ad on Instagram and, and just making that purchase instantly. It's right. a much easier justification. <laughs> Now, I was gonna, as mentioning, you know, different tools that that companies use. I was reading a stat the other day that said there are more than eight thousand marketing tech solutions that are out on the market, and I just hear that number and it makes me gasp because I I could I have no idea what you would need all of those tools for. So, in your experience, what is sort of a must-have, you know, marketing tech stack? Absolutely. So, tech stack is actually. It's number seven of eight on our pillar list. So exactly to your point, there are so many options and solutions. And the biggest thing that I always tell clients is it's not so much the tools that are in your tech stack. Yes, that's crucial. But what is the usability around it? And how are you really disciplined in the education around the tool, the use of it, maximizing for success? And... um, because you can buy all the tools in the world. And if you're not using them effectively, it's not going to make a difference to your business. But to answer your question directly, which is what are the most important tools in that tech stack, um, on the sales and marketing side, regardless of your industry, uh, marketing automation and a CRM, those are going to be the two strongest tools in your toolkit to be successful, to grow, to scale, to automate. Again, it's how can you spend your time on the highest and best, the things that you're really good at, the things that make the biggest difference to your business. How do you automate the rest of those things? How do you use data to help you make future decisions based on what you're seeing out of those tools so you can spend your time on the things that are giving you the best results? Those two are going to be the most crucial tools in your toolkit if you are a marketing or a sales professional. And the key to the kingdom is making sure that those things are integrated. So sometimes that means an all-in-one tool solution. Um, that's what we do. We are a HubSpot partner. And our, and when I say what we do, I mean our own tech stack. Our website is built on HubSpot. Our marketing automation is there. And our CRM all sits under HubSpot. But that doesn't have to be the solution for you. You could have a HubSpot marketing automation and a Salesforce CRM. And they can still talk to each other. And that's just the crucial point there. It's, you don't want those things to to break down and lose that that really important key data point. Yeah, because I've seen a lot of arguments over the years of like, which is CRM is the best. And you always have the Salesforce crew. And then you have some people yeah. who are, you know, the five people in the world that use, you know, like the the Zoom CRM and all Salesforce and HubSpot. It seems like those are the two that are constantly battling it out. And I, I've always wondered how those two tools will either play nicely together or maybe not so much. I would imagine that they might not play nicely together, but I would be surprised if, if they did or it, it would be dumb if they didn't. Yes, yeah. We have quite a few clients that sit in this in the HubSpot seat for marketing and the Salesforce seat for sales. And they do actually have some really nice and in easy integration, which is a huge plus side because if you've committed to a CRM, like I said, if you're disciplined in it, you don't want to make that change. That change is not only 
a huge investment from a dollar standpoint, but from a time standpoint and getting that buy-in from your team and your organization is so hard once they're already comfortable in the tool. So they should play nice and we've found it to be quite successful for many of the clients we work with, which is great. 100% because the best CRM is the one that the sales team will actually use. If they don't use it, it's worthless. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times. Amen. <laughs> All right, Nadine, um, what else should, should folks know about um, Sync Show, where to follow your work, all of that good stuff? Yes, we would love for you to check out our website at syncshow.com. We have a learning center that's linked at the bottom of our site. We give out a ton of free content. So at the end of the day, our blog, our YouTube channel, our social channels, we're always sharing industry pieces, especially in the transportation and logistics world. I also um, co-host a Transportation Insights YouTube series where we dig in with leaders in the sales and marketing space on what's successful. And the whole idea is to just say, let's continue to build this community. Let's share what we're learning because we have plenty of room for everyone to be successful and let's just help each other out. So I encourage you to subscribe, follow us there. If you know someone or you are someone that should come and speak to me about where you found success in sales and marketing and transportation, I'd love to get to know you and please drop me a line. My email is Nadine N at syncshow.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. That that was new to me about the YouTube series. I'm gonna have to go and unsubscribe as soon as the show or not unsubscribe. I'm gonna have to go and subscribe after the show is done. So thank you so much, Nadine. Uh, I really enjoy your work and it was a pleasure talking to you in less of a combative environment such as the lazy river that goes 30 miles an hour. <laughs> yes, yes. Thanks so much, Blythe. Great to see you. Have a great rest of your day. You too as well. All right. Well, first, awesome guest interview done. Let's go ahead and head into our next guest interview. But first, want to boost your bottom line? Start with hiring the right talent. The Moon Air Group is a leading recruiting firm that specializes in identifying the top logistics and technology talent. Take the first step towards growing your business by visiting moonairgroup.com. And speaking of Moon Air Group, Let's go ahead and bring in Wasim. He is back for his second appearance on the show. We don't have many guests that come back for a second time. So that means he's going to have some really good insight for us again. So welcome in, Wasim. Hey, Blythe. Thanks so much for having me again. I really, really appreciate it. Looking forward to this. Absolutely. And so we've got a few topics to dive into. So I'm just going to jump right into it. Um, I mentioned That's earlier good. in the show <laughs> about the Gen Z sort of a slang that's going on in the hiring world today. And one of those that those different slang versions of what they're using is maybe it's not necessarily uh, solely Gen Z, but it's probably across several different demographics. But the concept of quiet quitting, can you break down what quiet quitting is? And if this is something that employers should really be worried about? Yeah, I mean, it, to be honest with you, it's, it's not something that I've heard too often, probably because I'm more so on the on the front end uh, of the employee experience. I'm on the hiring side of the experience more so on, than on the um, exit interview um, uh, of the ex employee experience. Uh, but my understanding is that it's basically when uh, there's just a lack of communication on the way out, right? I mean, historically, you know, people are really worried about their jobs and they want to make sure that they have security. And I guess we've had a couple of years of such a strong, um, you know, talent market that folks could, you know, walk away from their jobs without, you know, asking for an early performance review or asking for a weekly one-on-one -on -one with their manager to see how they can make things better and so on and so forth. And so these are things that used to happen regularly because people were, you know, super concerned about the stability of their jobs. And it was very much, um, you know, less a, a talent-driven market, but we had a very strong talent-driven market for the last couple of years. 
Um, and you see folks kind of walking away without giving too much notice. So with a lot of these, I, I guess, sort of the shifts in hiring that we've seen over the last couple of years, what trends do you think are here to stay based off of the last two years? And which ones do you think are going to kind of, I guess, sort of normalize as we head into, you know, the new year and, and kind of get a, getting away from the, you know, the lockdown life? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think certain things that were already happening, uh, COVID lockdown life, as you said, kind of just accelerated those things that probably would have happened over the next few years anyway. Um, but I think some of the hiring trends that we're seeing are our folks are becoming very much, particularly the the younger crowd, the Gen Z crowd that, that we're referring to, are, are becoming very focused on purpose-driven work. You know, historically, again, it's it's been about stability, money, benefits, healthcare. Uh, folks want to work on something that's important to them, that they're passionate about, um, where they feel like they can make a difference. Um, those things, I think we're, we're beginning to see more of an emphasis on those trends and COVID definitely accelerated that because people started to look at their job and their life and the work-life balance from a different angle, I mm. think, than they were before. Oh, that's super interesting with the, the purpose-driven. So I guess maybe to facilitate that, I would imagine that more companies are starting to have more you know, charitable efforts that they're closely tied to. I've seen that happening in the transportation space. Do, do you think that that's a, that's a safe assumption that more employers are going to start creating these purpose-driven programs? For sure. And I think it's it's not just about... I mean, it's about, about their, their mission, vision, values, right? I think it's about what kind of nonprofits they get involved with. But... I think I was more referring to the actual product and service that they're providing, right? Does does oh, the product true. have? Yeah, yeah. Does the product have uh, an impact on um, on the environment? You know, for example, mm. we see a lot in transportation. We see a lot of visibility tools um, and other automation tools that are allowing us to track environmental impact from trucks and and you know uh, final mile deliveries and things that we weren't really tracking at first. That's really important to some people, to a lot of people. Um, you know, what do they do in terms of work-life balance, in terms of healthcare? How progressive are they? How diverse is your workforce? These are things that people were talking about already. And I think we, we certainly um, saw that become accelerated. And the younger generation in particular, is, it's really, really important to them. Money is obviously important. People are always going to have to pay their bills. Um, but I would, I would say it's certainly not the number one thing anymore. Um, I think also the hiring trend that, that, um, you know, hiring managers and, and employers need to start paying attention to is uh, this generation has kind of always grown up seeking out mentors. I don't want to say that they've been coddled more than prior generations, but they're certainly used to having security, uh, generally speaking, more so than prior generations. And so employers need to think about assigning mentors, assigning coaches mm. when somebody joins an organization, things like that. Um, who is this person looking up to? Does this person... Um, you know, have certain interests in line with them? Do they have a career track that this new employee is looking to also have? And so this has to become part of the interview process to understand what's important to this person as an individual, not just are they qualified for this job? And is this job going to be interesting to them from a day-to-day standpoint? That's super interesting because I, I wouldn't have thought that that would be almost like a benefit, part of like a benefits package that an employer could offer is that, hey, we're not just bringing you in to fill a seat, but we're invested in you if you choose to invest you know, your career 
with us. And so I think that that's a super positive angle that a lot of companies can start taking to attract that top talent that can feel like they have you know room for growth. Now, on the flip side of it, especially with the younger demographic with Gen Z, we kind of joked about this the last time you were on the show after the show was over. But I saw this TikTok of this woman who was going through the hiring process and she really wanted this job that she had applied for. And when she didn't get selected in the email, she just sent back just a meme that said, why though? And so if you know that meme, why though, then it's a super funny meme. And that's all she sent back. But it worked. She ended up the the hiring manager laughed at it, brought her in for another, brought her in for that next phase of interviews. Are you? What do you think about this trend? Firstly, and then would you, I guess, advise other Gen Z people or maybe you know millennials or even older generations to use memes if they're trying to get a job? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's 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 the uh, it's last generation and the prior generation's uh, way of sending in your resume via snail mail. I remember when I first started recruiting, it was maybe 2012, 2011, 2012, somebody sent me a resume um, via snail mail and it stood out to me. And it made me, you know, maybe I would have missed that person in an applicant tracking system with 200 other applications. Um, but I said, you know what, this person really cares or, or, you know, this person made me pay attention to them. And so, the, you know, the point, I guess, of, of that TikTok was... Find, figure out a way to stand out. She got their attention, you know, and I think part of the unfortunate, I guess, the, the cons of all the automation we have on, in the recruiting world, especially in the internal recruiting world, um, is it allows you to see so many candidates so fast mm-hmm. at such a high rate and such a high volume that you forget you're dealing with human beings, right? And so it's just so easy to go, this person looks good, this person doesn't look good, this person looks good, so quickly going through applications, if you're even going through them, because you have so many automation tools that are just, you know, you know, filtering out candidates just based on keywords and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. I guess it was funny, but it also makes a point to say, figure out a way to stand out, even if it means taking a risk and doing something kind of funny that could be seen as unprofessional, depending on who's on the other side of it. But clearly it worked in that situation. Yeah. I mean, what do you have to lose, right? Like <laughs> you, they right. already didn't tell her about the, right. the, the, the job that she wasn't in? selected. Right. <laughs> So, so let's talk about what what does the current market look like as we're heading into Q4. Where are the hiring opportunities? Uh, is, is it just seasonal, or or should we be expecting or looking in, in other areas of the hiring world right now? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I I can I can speak generally to the market, I guess, but more so where we're focused. I think the hiring in the supply chain space, particularly in the supply chain technology space, is still very strong. I think we talked a little bit uh, in, in the last time I was with you about how to figure out who's hiring and where that volume is happening. And, and I said that we need to follow the money. And I think mm-hmm. the money uh, being invested and being spent uh, is being done so a little bit more selectively now because there's certainly hesitation in the broader market. Um, but the folks that were going after top 10, um, you know, grade A, top 10% candidates are still going after those folks at the same rate as they were before. Um, and that's that's most of the exposure that we have, right? Because our clients aren't reaching out to us to um, to reach out to folks that that you know are, are lower performers or or just average performers. And so I think the demand for you know the top talent is definitely still there. You'll see obviously in transportation Q3, Q4, uh, particularly in the contract logistics, the final mile delivery, everything that we see come along with the trends that have to do with the holidays. You'll see temporary hiring go up, but I think in terms of the the um, you know permanent full time employees, it's been uh, pretty pretty level. I think uh, over the last few months. 
And so say I'm I'm one of those top tier employees and I'm thinking about leaving, but it's just not something that's, you know, at, at, at the my the front of my mind each day. What should I do to sort of set up my my deck for success per se? Should I be out there, you know, work obviously working with a company like yours or um, actively submitting my resume, you know, just sort of testing the waters? Or how, how would how would you approach it? Or what advice would you give to somebody who who already is that top tier talent and maybe could benefit from making a job switch? Yeah, absolutely. So I will say that we're seeing um, two different kind of reactions to a change in the general market. Some candidates are thinking, maybe this is the time for me to make a move. I'm not really sure how my company is going to be affected by the, the general market. And then we see some folks who have become a little bit more hesitant. Let me just sit tight and see what happens with the market over the next couple of months. Um, and, and so we're seeing those, those two different things. I think the top 10% of talent that we see, um, the advice that I would give, but I think most of them are already doing it, is you should be regularly networking with the, the best of the best within your industry. I think most folks, you know, we we're obviously busy, so we do make placements, of course, within that within that group. But a lot of folks are finding their next job because they've been networking within their industry to begin with. And so I would recommend, you know, even if you're happy where you are, you're thriving, you're doing great, you're being promoted, um, regularly be involved in industry events. You know, get to know people within your industry at your level and above. If you're a younger person, seek out a mentor within the industry. Most of the jobs that you're going to find, if you're you're you know top talent, you're going to be pulled um, into an organization as a result of one of those efforts. And so, if you're not doing that already, I would highly recommend starting to do that as a regular practice. And so, you mentioned networking. Is that uh, is that more in like the social media realm? Is it you know virtual or live more. events, or is it kind of all of the above? All of the above. You know, you know whether you're looking for a job or not, make sure your LinkedIn profile is up to date share content that's relevant to your industry, add value to whatever network you're involved in, whether it's uh, LinkedIn or something more social uh, like Facebook or, or whatever. Um, you know, if you can attend industry events in person, great. It's never been easier than in the last couple of years. That's one of the, you know, the silver linings from COVID. There's so many virtual events that you can attend for free. Um, and then, you know, maybe it's only 15 minutes of the whole hour or something, but it gives you an opportunity to connect with people that have similar interests. And now all of a sudden you're not reaching out to a stranger on LinkedIn. You're reaching out to somebody who was at the same event, you know, watching the same panel, discussing the same thing in some kind of chat. Um, and you have, you know, a warm introduction as opposed to reaching out to a total stranger. So there's a lot of ways to go about it. So when you had mentioned earlier about how, you know, the different employers and, and how they're offering these mentorships and, you know, sort of a coaching role to entice employees to, to join their company, what about the retention model? How are employees, are they, are they valuing um, the retention or staying within that company? And is there anything that I guess maybe some companies are doing really well that other companies should be doing more of to keep their top talent? Absolutely. So I think the companies that have the best retention rates are getting ahead of the game in terms of succession planning and development planning. So, you know, the, the, the companies that are doing a really good job are approaching their, not only, not, not only their top employees, but all of their employees that they care to retain and finding out in advance, what do you want to do next? Where do you want to be in your career two, three years from now? And, and, and actively doing that, you know, on a granular scale, maybe you have a one-on-one -on -one with your direct reports once a week or every other week. And so you're tapping into their interests on a regular basis as opposed to once a year at a performance review. The, the employers that maybe are struggling with retention, they wait till someone puts in their two weeks notice to find out, hey, what was important to you? you know, why didn't we address this earlier? 
you know, maybe there wasn't an open door policy. Maybe nobody was communicating with that person. And so, you know, some folks are a little bit more uh, forward and they will ask for what they want and what they're looking for. Some folks, maybe they don't know any better. And so as an, as an employer, if I want to retain my best employees, I'm going to proactively find out what's important to them and try to feed that to them as much as possible. What about the shift, I guess, the world, the, I guess the enormous shift that happened within remote work? Is that another, you know, we saw Apple, I think this week is starting to require all of their employees to come back into the office is, but they, they kind of backed away from the full time. Everybody is back in the office every day. It's kind of a hybrid approach where three days at home and you have to come in on these days versus, you know, Monday, I think it's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you have to come in every day to Apple, but Mondays and Fridays are optional. Um, are you seeing that among the, the workforce of an, of employers trying to use that as a retention tactic or recruiting tactic where they're offering these hybrid work models or is most companies just going back to the office? It, it is absolutely at the forefront of the conversations that we're having with mm. our candidates, 100%. Um, some employers have taken the, the line of this is what we're going to do. It's our way or the highway, full time in the office. Some are offering hybrid. Some are still saying, you know, full time from home. Some are saying, hey, department managers, mid-level managers, it's up to you. Do what you need to do to, to keep your employees happy. It is absolutely, though, at the forefront of, of our uh, conversations with candidates. People change the way that they're living in a lot of ways, whether they moved away from a big city uh, or they decided we don't want to, you know, put our kids in childcare anymore, or they switch schools. Or like people made major life changes over the last couple of years, you know, based on the fact that, hey, look, I, I don't have to be in an office. I've clearly proved myself. And if my company ever requires me to come back, I have a track record of performing well working from home and somebody else will find that attractive. Uh, and so it, it is definitely causing a major, uh, major shakeup. Uh, some some employers, I think, unfortunately, are using it as an opportunity to, to cut some fat, particularly as the market is changing, uh, maybe an opportunity to have an excuse to let go of their, their bottom 10%. Um, but a lot of employers, I think, in a smart way, are, are not doing a black and white um, either or scenario. I think the smartest way to go about it is if the jobs can be performed remotely and they have a proven track record of doing so, they should have the opportunity to do that. This is what the workforce is looking for. Obviously, if it's a hands-on job where you're in a warehouse or you're touching something physically and you need to be there, then you're required to be there. But you know, we have we have you know we've seen clients that and clients and just companies in general that um, are requiring folks to be in person that had a performance track record that was strong for two years doing the same job from home. And and sometimes I scratch my head about that to be honest with you. But um, you know, they're they're learning. I think a lot of companies are learning as they go to see how our employers and future candidates reacting to the moves that they make. That's very well said because I think that it, the rigidness over, you know, the the work from home versus work in the office, I think that a lot of those people are just going to be pushed out not naturally by the the market conditions. If you're going to be rigid about your employees being in the office when they don't have to be because you're a micromanager, I think you're just going to be phased out employment wise. All right, Wasim, what what else should we know about the hiring market as as we enter into Q4? Is there anything else that that employees maybe looking for new new opportunities should be aware of? Uh, I think just, you know, keep an eye on the trends that are, that are out there. Keep an eye on which companies are doing well, who is introducing something new into the market that's going to actually have an impact. Pay attention to those things. Those are going to be the organizations that are hiring, even as the market is, uh, you know, fluctuating up and down, uh, maybe being more of a bear market over the next couple of months. We're certainly going to see that. So just pay attention to who's actually making an impact, who's actually driving real value. 
those are the organizations that are going to be seeking out the top talent for sure. Awesome insights just as last time. All right, Wasim, where can folks follow more of your work, Moon Air Group's work, all that good stuff? Yeah, definitely visit our website at moonairgroup.com. Follow me on LinkedIn. Follow Moonair Group on LinkedIn. We're always trying to put out relevant content that's important to people. Love to get to know everybody. Please reach out to me personally and uh, we'll certainly connect. Awesome. Thank you so much. Great insight. Loved hearing that, especially as we enter in Q4, where a lot of people are going to be making decisions about what 2023 and beyond has for them. So thank you again for that insight. Thanks, Blythe. Enjoy it. Take care. Yes. All right. Well, that another great perspective, another great interview. I don't know that I would ever actually leave an interview and in saying, you know, this terrible interview, but I think you folks know um, we try to get some of the, the better guests, the better thought leaders um, to come on the show. And so this is just another sort of record of that, of having that interesting perspective from folks who are right there at the front lines of the marketing world and also of the hiring world. And so as we sort of alluded to earlier in the show, not sort of, I definitely talked about this earlier, but a fun topic. I always like to leave the show with a fun topic of the week, sort of a historical, maybe a fun fun nugget of information that maybe can help you win some trivia. But the origin of English black tea. Now, I, for me, myself, I have studied history um, for a very long time. But until I started studying maritime industry and started interviewing people from the maritime industry, that's when I really started to gain a full sort of knowledge of what's going on and how maritime and the control of the ports and shipping and trade lanes really affects just sort of the entire human civilization throughout the course of history. And so it's been really, really interesting to dive into um, a lot of different YouTubers, um, independent media. I'm a big supporter of independent media. And a lot of YouTubers are up to... Are, actually, you know, promoting this other independent media platform that talks about the uh, different sort of historical, knowledgeable videos. And they create these different things all throughout YouTube. And then they promote this platform called Curiosity Stream. So it's only 20 bucks a year. So I ended up going and purchasing the subscription. And the first thing that I saw was uh, The Return of the Trade Wars, which is a film by Christian Buckard and Daniel Guthrie. Them. And it really was talking about, and it had a whole bunch of different points within the story. But the main point that they talked about was how China is the origin of English black tea. And so going through a lot of the different notes, because I took notes while I was watching this, it was about a 10 minute part of the segment of this actual show that was about 30 minutes long. And so they said tea has always been popular in the UK for literally hundreds of years. But how did that tradition start? And it's considered that tradition starting is considered economic espionage. And so a little bit of a backstory is that China in particular, their borders were closed for a very long time, meaning no trading partners. But the British at the time had the largest naval fleet. This was around the 17th century. So they had the largest naval fleet and they had control over India and some of the islands over in that area of the world. And so because they really wanted to trade with China, what they did was some devious stuff. So what they did first is that they took the opium. So they took opium that they were growing in other countries and they started supplying it to residents within the southern border of China. And so when China kind of found out, the Chinese emperor, when he found out, he sent soldiers to the south to get rid of these invaders. And so when that happened, the British 
declared war because they were inflicting or they were, I guess, uh, affecting the different trade opportunities that were going on in that region of the world. So they really just opened fire from their naval fleet from the sea. And this forced China to open up their borders and open up their ports to allow for, that was part of the agreement to end the war, was they had to open up their ports and allow the British to trade with them. And so what happened is that all of these different ports started opening up now. And so you have several different locations locations up and down the eastern border of China that are now open for the British to become a major trading partner within all of those different locations. If you're looking at the map right now, it's about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different ports that then opened up because of this sort of manipulation using opium, the drug opium, and kind of affecting the population negatively. And then what happened is that forced the, the Chinese into opening fire and then British obviously returned fire. And so what happened after that is because that was when the business-minded Brits, as, as they called them, it gave them the ability to create this economic espionage and steal the secret growing, harvesting, and ultimately consumption of Chinese tea, which we know today as black tea. It's actually sort of a fun topic so, or side note that in China, this tea is known as red tea, but in the rest of the you know UK and US predominantly, it's known as black tea. So we're going to play a video for you right now that sort of breaks this down. But because it's done in French, I'm going to talk over while the video is playing. So if we could go ahead and get that video started. So the British botanist Robert Fortune disguised himself as a Chinese person as best he could. During this time, foreigners were strictly forbidden from traveling to the Chinese backcountry. Yet that's where the best tea types were grown. Fortune hired a Chinese guide. Fortune is the botanist that disguised himself as a Chinese person. So Fortune hired a Chinese guide that risked accompanying him in return for a higher salary. And this is how Fortune managed to get to most of the remote areas of China. And this is where the place, these are the places where the best tea was grown. He brought samples, sometimes stole them too. And he observed how the tea was grown, how it was harvested, how it was dried, how it was cut and mixed. And so once they learned how to do this, they started growing the tea in India and they quit buying as much tea from China itself. And so within a half century, so 50 years, 90% of British tea was purchased in India. And that, my friends, is economic espionage. Because I think that what's really interesting is if you think about the modern day landscape of what kind of the US versus China relations one of those bigger arguments is about China stealing a lot of and the Chinese government, not, you know, sort of Chinese citizens. The Chinese government is stealing a lot of intellectual property from U.S. entrepreneurs, U.S. business owners, software companies, things like that. And so it's just a kind of an interesting correlation that, you know, that's the biggest complaint when it comes to U.S. or one of the bigger complaints when it comes to U.S. and China relations. And it was going on and they were at China was actually a victim of this um, years and years ago, hundreds of years ago, which I think is kind of um, an interesting take of why we study history. So to we can gain a larger perspective on why certain societies make the decisions that they do. And I also thought that this was one more final note that I think is super interesting is that the Boston Tea Party occurred in 1773 here in the US. If you don't know what the Boston Tea Party is, go take a history class, please. Um, but the end of the Revolutionary War was in 1783. So that means that the soon-to-be Americans had boycotted tea for roughly 10 years. And it was over these 10 years that people developed a taste for coffee. And once people started to drink coffee every day, there was no 
going back. And so because of the Boston Tea Party and because of all of the, the, you know, the issues that were going on between the U.S. and the U.K., it caused a lot of U.S. residents to start drinking coffee instead of tea. And now the U.S. currently ranks about 35 out of 55 tea drinking companies, but 90% of the tea market is black tea. So we had the British economic espionage to thank for um, for the overwhelming majority of people in the U.S. drinking black tea. So I thought that that was a really interesting story. Go check out Curiosity Stream in order to see more supply chain focused, you know, documentaries like that. But that about does it for this week's show. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll be back next week. Um, Thursday, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I should probably know that by now. If you want to follow more of my work, you can check out everythingislogistics.com to see all my socials and all that good stuff. But until then, we'll see you right back here next week, 2 p.m. on Thursdays.